It was Christmas Eve, 2010. I had just finished my first semester at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, feeling rather accomplished and theologically well-adjusted. We were flying home to see family the very next day on, on Christmas, Christmas morning. And so Brittany and I thought we would throw a little feast. It was Christmas Eve. It was just the two of us. We would do a grand feast together. And as many of you know, Brittany is a phenomenal cook. And where I lack in that department, I gain in my phenomenal ability to scrub the dishes. But yeah, this was Christmas Eve. I felt drawn to partake in the beauty of the feast that would be this Christmas Eve. And so I wanted to help. I wanted to be involved. And so Brittany put me on the task of slicing the sweet potatoes using a mandolin. Do you know of these things? These kind of board-like contraptions with a raised middle edge with a razor on it, so when you slide the potato across it, it nicely cuts the potatoes. It's my first time using such a contraption. And so I started at it, and I exclaimed. I, I was amazed by this contraption, how easy, how unthinkably easy this was. And then I felt it cut something other than a potato. I was not thinking that the rate at which this was easily cutting that potato was equal to the rate that that potato was decreasing in size. And therefore, my fingers becoming closer and closer to that razor's edge. And sure enough, I had cut the tip of my index finger right off, along with those potatoes. Um, now, it's incredible how such a small, yet impressive wound can ruin oneself and the special night one had planned. I could no longer assist with dinner. My finger had uh, literally taken me out completely. It was an impressive wound. It would not stop bleeding. Uh, and so I sat, I was humbled to, to sit in our bedroom uh, and hold my finger up with constant pressure upon it to try to get this finger to stop bleeding. But after an hour, as soon as I would let go of the pressure, Boom. It's like it was jealous of all the gravy that was going to be poured out upon the turkey. This guy was profusely bleeding. I could not stop it to, of bleeding. And if you know me, I personally, I just, I have, a, I have trouble kind of humbling myself to the point of needing to go to the doctor, especially to go to the ER room. And so I was thinking through everything, and I thought maybe an iron to the wound would help stop the bleeding, but maybe cause other problems. So I, I, I agreed to cough up the money to go to the ER room. And so as we were walking, we're preparing ourselves to go to the ER room in a state of disappointment, we hear the knock at the door. Someone's at our door. We open it up, and it's our landlord to give us a Christmas gift. Now, our landlord is originally, she was originally from the, the foothills of the Himalayans, uh, from a small region next to Nepal. And she wants to see my wound, and I show it to her, and like a messenger of God, she said, thou shalt not go to the ER room. <laughs> not quite that way, but that was the message. She said, have you tried using cayenne pepper? I said, cayenne pepper? Yes, cayenne pepper. And so I'm game for anything at this point. So I'm like, come on in, let's go. So she took us to our kitchen. She grabbed the cayenne pepper from our spice rack and we, we went over to the sink and she just poured liberal amounts of cayenne pepper on my wounds. 
Yes, it was the most unusual experience of pain that I've ever been in, but yet it worked. It stopped the bleeding. It was magnificent. And so for the rest of the night, I still could not help with dinner, which was postponed now by a few hours. For the rest of the night, I could do nothing other than hold my finger up because I was a bit scared of hitting it, hitting it and causing it to bleed again. But I sat there, and all I could do was look at my hand covered with blood and cayenne pepper in amazement that this cheap ground pepper was able to save me hundreds of dollars from going to the ER room. It was wonderful. I was lost in wonder by this fact of what cayenne pepper can do. It was simply marvelous. And it's often the case in life that when we are brought down low, we are able to see the wonder of things. It's in the valley, the humble valley, that things look large and significant. And it's on the heights that makes things in the valley look small or insignificant. In other words, it's the humble who, in general, are trained to see the wonder of things. And more specifically, it's the humble who are trained to see God's power and grace and the ability to celebrate it with joy, wonder, and praise. This is the story of Elizabeth and Mary. They are two individuals trained in humility to see the marvelous work of God in their midst. Now let's remember, before we land in our gospel text in later in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, let's remember Elizabeth's story. Her story is a long and unlikely one of disappointing barrenness that's met with God's intervening power to create. When Gabriel appears to um, Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, he says to him, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. One can easily imagine that this old and advanced in years couple could have lived a life of prayer of waiting for multiple decades, decades upon decades for a child, year upon year for a child, month after month of disappointment and pain, weeping and crying out to God over and over again for the blessing of a child, and yet nothing coming, left to just lament their broken situation and cry out over and over and over again, But these years of barrenness, these years that they were crying and praying out, trained them in humility, trained them in prayerfulness that waited upon God's goodness. So when Gabriel says, your prayers have been heard, it's a weighty affirmation that God hears, that God is close to the cries of his people, and God is faithful to act in line with his faithfulness. Your prayers have been heard. Elizabeth's story is a beautiful, or beautifully consistent, I should say, uh, with the other long-suffering, barren women throughout the Old Testament. You, we can easily think of Sarah and Abraham with God's blessing upon them and calling of them. She, Sarah, becomes the mother of a nation. Hannah in 1 Samuel, and God quoting, remembering his servants, and looking upon her affliction and granting her a child who becomes Samuel, devoted to the temple, 
who ends up anointing not only Saul as the king of Israel, but David. Thus, Elizabeth, like these other great women, have been trained in their humility, which opens up their eyes to the power and glory of God's work. Hannah's prayer, which is a very famous prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she says, God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. I think it's safe to say Elizabeth was well acquainted with the dust and the ash heap, which trained her to see and then celebrate the God who raises up and lifts the poor and needy. For the Lord has looked upon her as she herself testifies in chapter 1, verse 25. And in faith, she gladly receives God's power and grace. Now let's remember Mary's story. An unlikely story of a young, unknown girl who's met by God's grace to work through her to redeem and restore his people through her son. Mary is from Nazareth. And Nazareth is, has no real cultural significance. You could maybe say that Worcester is far more on the map than Nazareth would have ever been. It is culturally insignificant. Mary is also more than likely, scholars would say, between the ages of 12 to 14. 12 to 14. While this is a typical age for a girl to be betrothed, it's not a typical age we tend to look to occupy a significant role in redemptive history or in history, for that matter. She's 12 to 14. And Mary's family as a whole is not really mentioned in the text. We know next to nothing about Mary's background and heritage. So who is this girl? We really don't know. Similar to Abraham. When God calls Abraham, who's Abraham? Ur of the Chaldeans. A man on a journey. And then God intervenes. And God speaks. It's the same with Mary. She's from Nazareth. She's extremely young. And we don't know much about her family. But what we do know is that God loves to call the unheard and the unknown in the world to work his redemptive power and purposes. Mother Teresa, at one point in her life, was asked who she thought was doing the most significant Christian work in the world, right? So someone wanting to figure out, Mother Teresa, who do you think is doing the grandest work uh, among Christians in the world? And her response not only reflected her wisdom and knowledge of God's ways, uh, but also is good for us here as to sit with this as we think about the Mary. She said, if there is such a person out there no one would know who they were. They'd be unknown. We wouldn't be able to really talk about them. I'm sure they're out there, but we don't know who they are. And we wouldn't know who Mary was either if it wasn't for the gospel accounts and the the witness of the church. It's a beautiful reality. God loves the call of the unheard and the unknown. And for the young ones here with us this morning, let that be an encouragement to you. We need the ability of the younger ones among us to have an unreserved faith, an unreserved wonder of the world and God's ways. 
and to respond to God in faith as often the unknown or the youngest among us can better do than we ourselves as adults. It's this young and unknown girl that responds to Gabriel's announcement saying, I am the servant of the Lord. Do unto me according to your word. A beautiful response of unreserved faith before this revelation that she's been given by the angel. How we need to become more like Mary in her unreserved devotion to our Lord. We would do well to pray often this response of Mary's. I am the servant of the Lord. Do unto me according to your word. Just pray with such open-handed faith, allowing the Lord to work in unthinkable ways. To remember Elizabeth and Mary is to remember the larger story of God's redemptive faithfulness. God is intervening into human history to bring about his everlasting kingdom through his son. To do this, he solicits and embraces the partnership of Elizabeth and Mary, just like he's done in the past, starting with Abraham, and just like he's doing with us today. Mary and Elizabeth have fully embraced God's work in them and through them. So when their stories collide in the text we heard today, in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45, it's quite a unique moment. So if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 35. Mary visits Elizabeth, and it's a quite unique moment. Picture this scene. We have an unlikely older woman and an unlikely 12 to 14-year-old girl overjoyed by this most unlikely situation. It's a situation that would have evoked such strong emotion, tears of joys, screams of, you gotta be kidding me. This is unbelievably crazy. And I would put forward possibly deep amounts of laughter. I mean, there's so much joy in this scene. Such gut-wrenching laughter, the, the type of laughter that is so uncontrollable, it's, it's mixed with weeping almost, and this, the, the type that hurts your side over time. There would have been such emotion involved in this moment as these two women greet each other. So much so that it looks like even John the Baptist, only six months along in his mother's womb, wants to get in on the joy and on the celebration as he leaps with joy, filled with the Holy Spirit. So much joy in this scene. And then what we have next is Elizabeth's humility enables her not only to celebrate this great moment, but also leads her to celebrate Mary and elevate Mary above herself. Elizabeth, holding the place of honor, being the one who's not only older than Mary, well older than Mary, but also married to a priest, having the place of honor, Elizabeth celebrates the moment and exalts Mary above her. The younger is being elevated above the older. Blessed are you, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She can so clearly see God's gracious activity in her midst that she gladly takes the role of servant and exalts Mary 
as the mother of her Lord. The tables have turned. Elizabeth's humility not only accepts it, but embraces it and celebrates it. Just like her son, John the Baptist, will do in his own proclamation of the one who is to come after him. John will say, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. In this scene, you get this sense that the meeting of these two women is a collision of profound humility, unreserved faith, bubbling up and spilling over in celebration, in wonder, and in joy, and next now with Mary's song of praise. The Magnificat, this song of Mary. This song is referred to as the Magnificat. It's Latin for magnify because it's all about the magnification of God. God is at the center of all this. This is what Mary's story proclaims. This is what Elizabeth's story is proclaimed. This is what Abraham's story proclaims. This is the work of God's divine call and God's divine words and God's faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises. And so this song of Mary's is all about the magnification of God's power and grace to work in our midst. Mary says at the very beginning of the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In essence, she's saying my life is one big magnification of the Lord's greatness and the source of my joy is in him, his ability to save and restore. This last summer, we at Church of the Cross had summer sessions, similar to our January sessions, get involved. Um, and I had the privilege of going to John Zuhun's summer session, where he took us to the observatory to look through the telescope. And we got to see pretty magnificent things. We got to see Mars and um, and Saturn and some stars. But what I think I enjoyed the most was seeing the moon. Because you see the moon every day. You can, right? Like it's there. It's always there. And you can see it. But when you see it with such great clarity through a telescope, you get to see more of the details, the craters, and even, I don't remember the term, but like the, the specific little indention right in the middle of the crater. And then there is this unique kind of moment of, of being able to look at that line in which the, the sun's light is dissipating into darkness on the moon. And it kind of elevates, or just the contrast there makes you be able to see the, the various contours of the moon. It truly was magnificent of seeing the great details upon the moon's surface. And in a way, Mary is saying, my life is like that telescope. God's greatness, God's glory, God's power and grace is always present. It's always here with us and among us. And yet, if you look through Mary's life, it's magnified, right? You see it with all the more clarity. You see it with all the more uniqueness to it. That's always there. But if you look through her life, you see the power of God. And Mary's, the rest of the Magnificat is all about why. How do you see it? First, Mary says about her own situation. 
Mary says, and, and listen to the verbs that God is the subject of, all these verbs. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and he has done great things for me, and has blessed her to such a degree that she has gone from being a random, obscure young girl to being a girl to all generations, calling her blessed. And why is that? That's just because of God's work in her life, God's great, God's greatness and his grace, which again is yet another affirmation that the Lord sees and remembers his servants. The Lord looks upon them with his grace and his mercy. Second, she broadens her reasons to his ways among all people. She broadens her reasons and says, again, all these statements, and listen to these verbs and which God is the subject of, he has shown great strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. And he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. Mary's, Mary magnifies the Lord's power and grace over all human affairs. His ability to thwart the powerful, the rich, the oppressor, and his, his equally his power and his grace to extend himself, to have mercy and to intervene for the weak and the poor and the needy. She praises God as the divine warrior, the God who puts an end to those who grasp after power, who use power to oppress others. His ability to allow the prideful man and allow that pride to be his own destruction. She praises God as the merciful and gracious covenant keeper, the God who raises up the lowly and the needy, fills empty hands, empowers the weak, and leads the humble into depths of joy and the abundance of life. He's the all-powerful covenant keeper, crushing the oppressor, and elevating the humble. Mary and Elizabeth have been trained by humility to see the power and grace of God in their midst and to celebrate it with joy, with wonder, and with praise. The question is, will we become like them? Will we be trained by humility in the same way? Are we being trained by humility, to see and celebrate God's power and grace, his faithful activity in our midst? Or is pride choking our wonder, choking our joy, and choking our celebration of God and his activity and his redemption? G.K. Chesterton says this about pride. I think it's a really good statement for us. The evil of pride consists in being out of proportion to the universe. Being out of proportion to the universe. And I'll put forward that there's not much in our culture and in our day that is even warning us from being out of proportion to the universe. But maybe even the reverse. It's actually putting forth that this is the good life to pursue such ambition that makes us larger than life. 
We've normalized such a pride as a form of ambition. And then we get into a place in which that pride has so blinded us from God's activity that where's God in all this? He seems rather absent. What we don't realize is that pride dries up the ability to see God's power and greatness. To see his grace. It dries up the ability to laugh and to enjoy. It dries up wonder. It dries up praise. Has our head become too full of such serious thoughts about ourselves and about our purpose in life that we cannot laugh and wonder? Does our sense of importance, along with our stress and worries that feed that sense of importance, stop us from bowing before God in the manger, before God with us, Are the obstacles in our life and the trials, which are many, we all suffering through various obstacles and trials. As the psalm said earlier, full of being fed with bread of tears. Are they leading us to a frantic pace of escapism? Or are they leading us to a a humbling of ourselves to see God's power? to wait upon his goodness and through that waiting to be able to see the magnificent work of God to exalt the lowly. If we want to celebrate Christmas rightly, then we must fall to our knees first, laying down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism besides the manger. All our weaknesses there in that place of humility before Christ our King. All our weaknesses, all our trials, all the pain that comes from them, the obstacles that force us to wait in life, leaving us to sometimes simply lament the sorrow and pain that is in us and around us. All these things are training us in humility. Embrace it, just like Elizabeth and Mary, and allow it to humble you, and allow it to train you to open up your eyes to the glory and the magnificence of God's faithful work in your midst and in our midst as the church. And as we allow it to train us, it will free us to celebrate and to wonder again and to praise God's magnificence and God's faithful work in our midst. Let's pray.